G'day, and welcome to another episode of the Adventures on the Road podcast, proudly brought to you by Avan to Hire. I'm Shane, your host. Now let's get on the road. We've just completed a road trip to the Granite Belt and the town of Stanthorpe in Queensland and spoke to a few local attractions. And like so many country areas in Australia, they've been struggling through drought and bushfires. The message here is they are open for business and they need everybody's support. Go and visit these towns. They can't wait to welcome you. In this episode, we have a collage of everyone. But over the next couple of months, we'll play the extended version with a bit more about them all. So stay tuned. Let's get started. I've got with me Greg from the Apple and Grape Harvest Festival. Morning, Greg. Hey, g'day, Shane. How are you today? Really good, thank you. Look, we're really wrapped to be here in Stanthorpe and find out about all the great things that uh, Stanthorpe has to offer. Now, you've got a biennial festival coming up. We certainly do, in the year 2020. Now, when is this festival on? It starts on Friday, the 28th of February, 2020, and it concludes on the Sunday, 8th of March, 2020. So what are some of the things that people could expect to see and do at the uh, festival? Gala opening nights, the Civic Centre, will be full of uh, great bands, great entertainment, Australian National Busking Championships, Banchetto Italiano. Banchetto Italiano. Exactly. Italian long lunch. Now that sounds right up my alley, a long lunch. I'm always up for a long lunch. We, over many festivals, had a a focus on recognising multiculturalism in this community. But somewhat, it's been the Italian migration to Stanthorpe that really set up what we experience today in our produce and naturally also in our wines because uh, the guy called Father Davardi came along here as an Italian priest and planted the very first uh, grapevine in those days, maybe to make some wine for mass. But uh, it grew a little bit from that as future generations come through. Okay, so we need to put that into our diary. Now... If people want to actually find out a little bit more information about all of the events, do you have a website? Certainly do. Appleandgrape.org. www.appleandgrape.org. All righty. So that's going to have all the details for you. Definitely to put it on the calendar from the 28th of February to the 8th of March 2020 for the Stanthorpe Apple and Grape Harvest Festival. Thanks, thanks for popping in, Greg. Take thank, care for now. Thank you, Shane. I've got with me Rob from Heritage Estate Wineries, who's going to talk to us about wine. Morning, Rob. Good morning. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm very well, thanks, Rob. So tell us about being a new immigrant. Well, that's an interesting thing. A lot of people say in an area like this that it takes 30 years to become a local. That may well be true, but we've certainly been well accepted and, and we're really enjoying the collegiate sort of life with our winemaking colleagues and the community in general. Uh, we found it very easy to settle in. Tell us a, l- a little bit about the winery. Heritage Estate's been going for about 30 years. Uh, our oldest vines are 60 years old, which were planted by Dick DeLuca, one of the founding fathers of the wine industry in Queensland. And we uh, inhabit a, an old apple store that was converted over 29 years ago using 100-year-old bricks from down the road at the Dalvin Brickworks. And it has some marvellous old antique furniture right next door to a 30-year-old vineyard where we produce most of our white wines. Our red wines are produced a little further south in the Ballandine Valley, uh, where it's uh, a little warmer, a little rockier, and uh, better for our reds. Uh, and I think the, the fact that we have the high-altitude 960-metre white vineyards and the slightly lower 800-odd-metre 
uh, red vineyards uh, is why we're actually doing so well on the national stage. When they come to visit your winery, what's waiting for them when they walk onto your property? Uh, as with uh, all Granite Belt wineries, we're, we're quite small. So you'll be talking to owners, grape growers, winemakers, uh, the real people who are involved in the industry. So you'll have a very real experience. Uh, we have a lovely cellar door full of antiques, including the, the table that the uh, Queensland government was formed around in 1859. And then on top of that, we regularly sample around about 12 to 13, depends on the season, depends what we've got in stock, uh, of some fa- fabulous holiday-rated wines. If people want to find out more about the Heritage Estate Winery, do you have a, a website? We do indeed. That's www.heritageestate.wine. Excellent. Well, Rob, I want to thank you for your time. I look forward to uh, enjoying some of the, the wine. Excellent. We'll look forward to seeing you then and look forward to seeing anyone listening to this who'd like to come along. Thanks for that, Rob. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Well, I'd like to welcome Peter from the Queensland College of Wine Tourism. G'day, Peter. Good morning. Thank you for having me along. Great to have you on the podcast. Tell me a little bit about who and what is the Queensland College of Wine Tourism. The Queensland College of Wine Tourism has been a feature of Stanthorpe for the last 12 years. It's a joint venture between the state government through the Department of Education and Training originally and University of Southern Queensland. It's um, a training organisation. It trains at school level, vocational education, TAFE level. And also it has um, some interests in tertiary education as well, being part of the University of Southern Queensland. We're all about furthering tourism and the wine industry uh, throughout Queensland. What about the traveller? What can they do when they come and visit? I guess what we really like to do is showcase food and wine. And uh, the, the Granite Belt, of course, for many years was, was known really only for apples or primarily for apples. We still produce an enormous amount of uh, fresh fruit and vegetables. And so that's a real part of what we present here at the college. We have a restaurant, Varia's restaurant, is, I really think it's one of the best restaurants in regional Queensland. Peter, so when we come to have a bite to eat for lunch and, and enjoy a nice wine, is there plenty of room there? Yeah, we've got great space there for people towing a van. You're able to turn around, you're able to park comfortably. Um, even, you know, we don't mind people bringing their, their pets in if they're well behaved and they sit out in the veranda. Uh, so that sort of thing is always a bit of a bonus. And one of the great things about being a, an institution, if you like, is that everything's institutionally clean. So beautiful toilet facilities and bathrooms and that sort of thing. And that's always such a plus when you're on the road. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Peter, thanks for your time. That's, that's been very interesting and enlightening. Do you guys have a website that we can go to and have a look at? Yeah, it's pretty easy too. It's www.qcwt, Queensland College Wine Tourism.com.au. Thanks for your time, Peter. Thank Take you. care. Great to be here. Well, if you're travelling through Stanthorpe and you want a really good caravan park to stay in, think I've got the answer for you. I'm chatting with Kim, the owner of the Country Style Caravan Park here in Stanthorpe. G'day, Kim. G'day, Shane. How are you? Good, mate. Really good. So tell us, the Country Style Caravan Park, why should we come and stay there? (laughs) Okay. Firstly, we are on the highway, so you don't have to uh, track off to try and find us. We're coming from the north. We're just on the south side of um, Stanthorpe at a little um, locality called Glen Aplin. So we're about 10 kilometres south of Stanthorpe and uh, coming from the north, uh, or sorry, coming from the south, we're about 40 minutes north of Tetterfield. So 
we're about midway actually between the uh, wine region of Ballandine and Stanthorpe Township itself. So we're ideally placed and about 20 minutes away from the Giroin National Park. So not much more that you need. No, that's a good spot to be. What are the facilities like at the park? We run a range of uh, cabin accommodation, uh, en-suited, en-suited with uh, air conditioning, reverse cycle air conditioning. Air, uh, we have cabins with uh, wood fire heaters for the winter months. Um, we've got uh, non-en-suited cabins for those who want a bit of glamping. And then uh, we have, of course, the range of powered sites and unpowered bush camping. And uh, if we're lucky enough to have the river flowing, then we actually have uh, riverside camping down the bottom of the park. Alrighty. What about pets? Can we, could we bring Fido along with us? Yes, you could bring Fido along. Um, we're quite happy to have uh, well-behaved pets. And, of course, we prefer well-behaved owners of those pets, people who are prepared to follow their pet around and uh, pick up where necessary. What about your park? How is it for, for taking in big rigs? Uh, our park's actually been pretty well designed uh, and we can take uh, some quite quite large rigs. All right. What's your actual website? www.countrystylecaravanpark.com.au All right. Excellent. Kim, again, thanks for your time and see you on the road soon. Thanks very much, Shane. Bye for now. Cheers. So we've, we've been visiting the Granite Belt, but I've got something that I think's just, well, it's different. I'm talking with Katrina Fraser, who has the Granite Belt, Christmas Farm. Hi, Katrina. Hi, Shane. How are you going? Look, I'm going really well. Tell me, the Granite Belt Christmas Farm, how did this come about? Well, basically, um, we moved from out west in central Queensland to um, Stanthorpe, and then we decided to create something of our own so um, we could raise um, our family together. So um, the Granite Belt Christmas Farm was born. As the name suggests, you grow Christmas trees. So I'm guessing a busy time of year for you is probably going to be December. Yeah, yeah, you're right there. (laughs) So we have our harvest weekend every year and um, that always falls on the first Saturday of December. So this year it's the 30th of November and the 1st of December. And that's when we open our paddocks up for families to come browse through our Christmas trees, pick their own. And then we cut it down and run it through a netting machine. And while they're there, they can browse our boutique Christmas store and then go home. So it's just, it's a really great family tradition. Okay, so they can pick a tree and it gets taken home. And of course, it's a living tree. Uh, the smell in your house of fresh pine at Christmas time is just absolutely sensational. Just amazing. But it's not just the Christmas tree you provide. You've you've got a bit of a shop there as well with some other interesting things, haven't you? Yeah, we do. So our farm is open all year round apart from February and March. We open seven days in school holidays. On our farm, we have the Mistletoe Boutique Store. That's filled with boutique Christmas ornaments and vintage collectibles and really that special Christmas gift for your family. We also hand make all our Belgian chocolates on site as well. Your website. What's your website address? Our website is www.granitebeltchristmasfarm.com.au. Well, thanks for popping in, Katrina. It's been great chatting with you. Thanks, Shane. Thanks for having me on. Now, I'm back with Glenn from Barefoot Fishing Safaris in the Northern Territory. G'day, Glenn. How are you? G'day, Shane. I'm good. Okay, so we're we're talking about coming up in the the, uh, last half of the year sort of thing when it gets a bit warmer up there. Now, I can get a bit thirsty at times. Does the Darwin Stubby still exist? 
Oh, well, no, it's a terrible shame. They actually took it off the market. Uh, when would that be? It must be five years ago now, I suppose. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you can still buy the NT draft there um, on tap in a few of the pubs, which are actually close to Caravan Park. There, one in Hidden Valley. I'm quite sure still pours the NT draft. But, yeah, that was a fairly iconic thing. And I'm not sure what happened there, but... Um, we, I do a fair bit of home-brew beer, and, uh, yeah, I've, I've got a lot of them that we use and, and fill them up from there. It's less washing bottles, and <laughs> you can you can obviously have a, have a few people get a sip out of it when you open one up. So, yeah, they were two litres, the old MP Drafts W. It's a great thing. Uh, that's a shame, isn't it? Never mind. Okay, so is there some good fishing spots in and around Darwin? Yeah, certainly. So, so close to Darwin, I guess, focusing on, on the Darwin area immediately. We we do a lot of um, half-day stuff in Darwin Harbour and, and single day. And we tend to find that uh, the, the people that we're getting on the half-day stuff, I suppose, are, they're um, people that, that might not be quite into fishing just yet or they just want to dip their toe in the water, so to speak, and um, just sort of doing it for the sake of doing it because they're in Darwin. And and those trips can be really good, you know. Quite often we'll get half a dozen bar on a on a half day, which is a four-hour trip. Um, we always have the crab pots out. I've got to go and check them later on today, actually, myself. And that's a great way to start. And then we can we sort of go up to a full day there, um, which is just seven or eight hours on the water, which obviously a bit more tailored to people who are a bit keener. Um, you, you, you've really got to focus around the tides in Darwin. Um, it's the absolute number one. So um, seven or eight hours gives you a chance to sort of uh, work a full spectrum of outgoing or incoming tide and, and really target specific fish in certain locations at certain times. Um, and, you know, like within, say, 40-minute drive in the boat from Darwin, is, is, it really is absolutely world-class fishing. You, you don't have to get too far away and you, well, even right in Darwin Harbour, you can catch a you know, they are great big black dewfish. They sort of average over a metre and 30 or 40 pounds, great chewing. And, of course, your barramundi and then your Spanish mackerel and all the other pelagic sort of sport fish as well. So it really is a place where, you know, if it, if it lines up for you, you can will catch in barramundi and mud crabs two days ago on the fishing charter and the Qantas planes are flying over us and we can see the city, you know. So there's not many places in the world you can be you know, essentially a 10-minute drive from an international airport and, and be in, you know, what is truly untouched wilderness. So I'm gathering from listening to you just now is that if you're a true fisherman, obviously you could look after them and, and obviously there's some other places that we're going to chat about that you can go fishing. But even just for someone starting out, it's a great opportunity to, to get amongst it right right in the centre of Darwin almost. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, like it. Great examples are obviously we take out kids and families fishing a lot. The four-hour stuff is absolutely perfect for for young families. We go and sit on a little rock bar with some with some bait, and the kids will catch fish hand over fist, and just it's a great way to get them started into you know what is a what is a really rewarding and and very healthy pastime. But also you know we do a lot of um, a lot of trips with bigger groups where we might get three or four boats together with school kids or some. Some bush kids who have come in to do a bit of time in town, or you know, some some of our um, the local special school organisers trips as well. I took a lady fishing the other day for half a day who had five percent vision in one eye only, and I was amazed at what she could achieve on her own, baiting her own hooks, catching plenty of fish, throwing mud crab pots, all sorts of stuff. So yeah, it really we can really tailor them to 
to anyone because you're so, you're so close to all these great locations. All righty. So talking about some great locations, what about the Peninsula Way? Tell us a little about the Peninsula Way. So as we sort of move away from down a little bit and, and then down to the west, um, we start start heading out towards Bino Harbour, the next large harbour around to to the west of um, of Darwin, and then and then you're down to Dundee Beach and and Bog Bay on, along the coast. There, there's some really cool little towns to, and and adventures to have as you head out through the Peninsula Way. So you you'll leave town, head through or down the highway to Noonamar, they're a fairly iconic pub there. They have a rodeo every month in the dry season and a really good feed through to Berry Springs and then on to Dundee Beach or Mandora. Uh, Mandora is the, is the western tip of the harbour out on Cox Peninsula and you can actually catch a ferry across there from Cullen Bay in Darwin City as well. Dundee Beach and Bino Harbour, two of our absolute premier fisheries um, and well supported by caravan parks and you're only an hour and a half from town but but you're out in the bush, you know. It was named after Nick Dundee and, and that same sort of vibe continues on now so yeah um that I, I spend a lot of time in the boat at dundee beach and um in bino harbour doing doing a whole spectrum of of different fishing from from our bottom and reef fishing to you know the really finesse stuff where we're sight casting at, at um, cruising barrowing clean clear water you know on the flats with a fly rod so that you can really tailor a fishing trip particularly but but also you know just camping and ecotourism bird watching you can go and do it all on your own um, or you can jump on and get some guided stuff as well so that's a that is a great area and and it it's it's ditchman roads all the way these days out to dundee so you know no, no um no creek crossings to do anymore like we used to have to do even only a few years ago we had to cross four creeks and, and you could get sort of locked in there at some stages during the wet season but um is all pretty flash out here now with the blacktop all the way. Nothing like that blacktop to travel on, is there? Blacktop to travel on is good stuff. Yeah, it's, a, it's better than dragging the boat trailer or the caravan up and down sorry, go to the roads every day, that's for sure. Now, you, you mentioned um, Vic Dundee. Now, of course... Th- there was the, those couple of movies that were made uh, about Mick Dundee featuring Paul Hogan. Just for the sake of our listeners who may not have realised that th- there was such a real character as Mick Dundee, can you just tell us a little bit about Mick? Yeah, that's right. Um, it was based on a true character and he's a bit of a ratbag up here. He operated, I'm pretty sure, a bit, operated a bit further to the east mostly, but essentially a bit of a poacher and a bush ranger and a sort of all-around ratbag selling um, crocodile skins and, and barramundi and things like this on the black market. Yeah, he, he is a bit of a lovable larrikin, I think, and quite probably quite well portrayed. We'll hear more with Glenn from Barefoot Fishing Safaris in upcoming episodes. Next, I continue our chat with Cam about buying a second-hand van. Whether it's been undercover or just out in the open it, it is a consideration, isn't it? Oh, definitely, definitely. Obviously, most preferably you'd want it to be undercover but the reality is is uh, quite a lot of vans are parked outside which isn't necessarily a bad thing they're built to be outside but it's quite often you end up getting water accumulation on the roof because it's not moving it doesn't have a chance to flow off again you end up with pools on the roof yeah it, well it's not it's not a deal killer if it's been parked outside Def- definitely um an undercover van will be in a, in a little better condition, especially topside. But, yeah, just don't be afraid to ask questions. 
uh, if if anything anything that you see on it seems sus, just speak up. Then once again becomes a, a price leverage if you find that it's been parked outside and covered in gum nuts on the top and <laughs> spider webs everywhere. Then yeah, you you've probably uh, got a chance of being able to work them down. I suppose it, it, it's worthwhile if, if they've got any sort of service history on the van or any documentation from when they bought it, like the manuals for the fridge or the hot water system or any of the appliances. Is that sort of an indication too, if, if they've got a full complement of all the bits and pieces of the information about the van there for you to look at, that's sort of an indication that things have generally probably been looked after and the van itself has been looked after. Yeah, most definitely, mate. You'll, you'll find that if if you you get a van that does have all the documentation and all together, then you, you're spot on that the owners, you can be a little more confident that the owners have, have treated it well. But it also does depend on the age and the type of van that you're buying. You, you're not always going to have documentation in a 15, 20-year-old smaller perhaps cheaper van a camper or something like that but yeah i i would i would even on a especially on a on a more expensive van i'd be i'd be seeing if they even have any of the weybridge certificates the gas and electrical certificates and most definitely just check with your local authorities as well to see whether whether it's a regulation that they need to have those documents yeah i mean that that's one of the things you've got to consider as well is obviously um the registration of the van, uh, whether it's currently registered or not. If it is, how long the registration is. I mean, that that's a bit of a bargaining point too when it comes to the price. Exactly. All right. Well, let let's sort of let's sort of chat about inside a van for a bit. Inside the van, it's almost I'm opening Pandora's box here. I think in some ways. <laughs> I was about to say can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've talked about dampness a little bit already. Let's let's assume for the moment we don't have a damp meter. We, we either haven't got one or we're at the initial stages of looking at the van. We haven't yet decided whether this one we're seriously thinking about buying, but we need to know whether it's going to be considered. Dampness is obviously a, a big factor because, as you said, it, it can be an expensive fix if there's some real dampness problem. Where and what sort of things should we be looking for inside a van that are going to give us a warning that there could be a dampness problem? Okay, well, I'll start with what what I I would do if we had a van come in with a leak. And what we'd usually check is pretty much just the corners, if that makes sense. So if you you have any cupboards say you've got your bed set up at the at the uh, front of the van and you've got your cupboards there open up your cupboards run your hands just back of your hand just gently down the down the ply inside the cupboards towards the the edges because usually your leaks are going to start from the edges and work out so first of all you'd look if, if there's any obvious obvious uh bubbling and and uh, water damage discoloration on the ply then, then that's a, a fair indicator. But I'd, even if there's no indication of anything, just running the back of your hand along the ply just lets you feel little weaknesses. It, it's, it just it feels thinner. There's a, a paper surface over the wood for the ply, and when the, the ply gets wet from behind, 
the wood basically disintegrates and it just becomes that paper surface. So you can feel it's a lot thinner. What about the floor? Uh, once again, as, was, as we were talking earlier, really just looking for, I'd be checking any plumbing connections coming through the floor around all those areas, any, any cupboards underneath sinks that might have plumbing connections where they could leak because obviously they'll end up down towards the floor. Discoloration obviously is an obvious indicator. You can see that there's coloration of where water has been. It's left the dirt obviously after the water's evaporated and, yeah, bubbling of the floor. The, the floor will, will expand if it's been wet because most of the, the, the floors will be a layered wood. So once the water gets inside, all the layers separate and expand. So quite often you'll just feel the dips and rises in the floor. So just sort of skimming your foot or if you, you're really keen, get down on your hands and knees and run your hands along it. But yeah, mainly with the floor, I'd be, I'd be checking where any, any pipes or even, even air for, for uh, heaters and so forth that are coming through the bottom of the floor just check around those from the inside to see whether there's any any evidence of any any water ingress now you were talking about checking where the the plumbing is say for a vanity unit that might if you have an ensuite in your van this is first-hand sort of experience i'm bringing up here is that sometimes it can just be that particularly if it's a van that's you know a few years old the the tap on the vanity unit could just be you know normal wear and tear and leaking a bit and the water drips back down from the tap down along the um the hose or the plumbing that, that that's coming in from the connections and it might only be if you look underneath the the sink and it's like a little vanity cupboard if there's a little bit of damage to just that top shelf um, that would sort of indicate that, and you then would trace it back, and you might be able to see that the water's been leaking from the tap itself, either from the uh, the basin side or underneath the basin from where the hose is connected, that you go, okay, that's where the water leak is. That's a relatively easy fix, correct? Yes, correct, correct. Whereas if there was water damage on the whole of the back wall of the vanity unit and down onto the floor, that would indicate that it's uh, a water leak in between the internal and external wall. Correct, correct. And that's obviously going to be more expensive and a drama to fix. Yeah, oh, exactly. Um, yeah, once once you start having to, to pull ply off walls and so forth, and like we were saying earlier, if it's a uh, wooden-framed van, even if the water's leaking from inside, it will still get to the frame. Yeah, so I, I suppose you, you, you've got to look at type of water damage and where it is and then try and make an educated guess as to whether, oh, that's only a minor thing as a result of, like I said earlier, the tap, which is an easy fix. Oh, no, this looks like it's coming from somewhere between the internal and the external walls, then that's a problem. Yeah, exactly, and that that's kind of the, the the way with a lot of the things with the van is 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 you need you need to decide what you're willing to what you're willing to fix, and what what is too much. It's going to cost you too much to get fixed. It's not going to be worth it. So it's good to be a little educated in that as you go into it as well. 
Thanks, Cam. More of that next episode. Okay, so I'm going to be now chatting with Alison Huth from What's Up Down Under, who's doing a bit of a road trip through New South Wales. Good morning, Alison. Good morning, Shane. How are you? Look, I'm really well. Actually, I'm well, but I reckon you must be feeling a lot better than me because you're doing a road trip. We are. We are. We've left home on the sunny coast and we're making our way down to a rather chilly Melbourne. Okay, so where did you stop the first night? Um, we stopped down at um, Tweed Billabong on the well on the Tweed, just on the Gold Coast area. It's it's a fabulous park. Um, we've been there before, but it's always great to go back and see a park and see what they've done. And these guys just never stop doing. You know, we were there well, last time we were there was five years ago, and they just for the launch of their um, camp kitchen and, and lounge, which overlooks the billabong with beautiful verandas and things. And five years on, that place looks as good as it was when they opened it. It's in such good condition. Now, if my memory serves me correct, I'm I'm going to go back longer than five years. I'm not going to say how long back I'm going. <laughs> but I stayed there with uh, my wife and kids many, many years ago. Now, the billabong, you can actually fish that billabong, can't you? They used to have fish in it. Do they still have fish in the billabong? Well, theoretically, yes. It's got lots of little, those tiny ones that you see floating around the edge. But there were a few people trying to fish. Um, Somebody caught one, but it was way below legal size, so they tossed it back. And there was one kid there who, who the family only had one fishing rod, and Dad had the fishing rod. But he just got a long, wobbly stick and... put a bit of fishing line on it and turfed it in and he sat there quite happily with his stick fishing for a couple of hours. It was amazing. But they've also got... His name wasn't Tom, was it? <laughs> no. No. Was, wasn't Tom Sawyer? <laughs> no, it wasn't. Though he could have been. He looked pretty good for that one. He just didn't have... He had shoes on, so he needed to have bare feet for Tom Sawyer, didn't he? Yes, yes. <laughs> he would have had to have bare feet and, and a straw hat. Yes, yeah. But they've got um, floating equipment and jumping stuff in the middle of the billabong now too. So it, it's quite an amazing setup there. And they have a coffee shop that opens two hours every morning and does fabulous coffee. From from what time does it open? About 8.30 to 10.30. Well, that's, that's where you'd find me if I was staying there from 8.30 to 10.30. I enjoy a good coffee. Well, that's where you found us. <laughs> <laughs> It was so did you did, did you just stay the one night? No, we were there for three nights. So, so what did you what did you get up to while you were there besides having coffee between eight thirty and ten thirty? Well, it's it's a bit of old home week for us when we go down there because Peter was born and bred on the Gold Coast, so we we go back and have a look at certain things that he likes to look at every time. Plus, we also climbed this little thing called Elephant Rock, and when we were up on the top of that, they they've got a. Um, a little stand and a request for you to put your mobile phone in there and take a picture of the coast and then send it off to a coast watch because what they're trying to do is get people to just keep recording how the changes, what the changes to the coastline are by simply taking a photograph from this set point on Elephant Rock. Oh, wow. Well, that's all for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out. Thanks to Avan to Hire for their ongoing support. 
To find out more on them or any of our other segments, visit our website and Facebook page. Until next time, I'm Shane. Have a safe journey.